If you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 12. Actually, I'd like you to turn just a few pages before that to Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 12 and through 14. <coughs> A few weeks ago, Phil presented a message on the fig tree, and I just want to tie that in with what we're looking at this morning, a couple of other passages, because this is an amazing parable. It has quite an impact, and it does not sit by itself. It, it is not left out there in a vacuum. There is reasons why Jesus said what he did, and it relates to so much of what he has said previously. Mark chapter 11, verse 12, we read, Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Then in verse 20, Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Very, very key illustration with nature that Jesus performs right there. Then please move down with me to verse 27. Then they, this is Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question, then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we have the living Word of God. And we are so grateful that you have sent your Spirit to dwell in us. Father, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to your Word this morning, that you would speak to us clearly. Lord, it is a great privilege to have your word, and yet even the Pharisees who studied it front to back left as fools and did not understand its message. Please don't allow that for us, Father. Please speak to us. Speak to us through me and in spite of me, Father, that your spirit would not be held back by my weaknesses and inabilities, but your spirit would speak to us because you are the mighty God whom we love and we adore. Lord, convict us of sin. Encourage us. 
direct us closer, nearer to you. For you are worthy. In your name we pray. Amen. Chapter 1, verse, out of chapter 12, verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. He dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. It's preparation for harvest time. Jesus does not shut down the conversation that seemed to abruptly end with his refusal to answer the Sanhedrin back in chapter 11. He doesn't shut it down, but he does control it. And he drastically diverts it from the quizzing priests, scribes, and elders to a far different and very effective style of teaching. He began to speak to them in parables. Parables. A parable is a story used to convey spiritual truth. Jesus often used parables with his disciples. In Mark chapter 4 verse 10, Jesus told his disciples and explained parables this way. To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So that seeing they may see and not perceive. And hearing they may hear and not understand. Lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. You see, most of Jesus' parables taught his followers, but confused the unbelievers. Jesus begins this parable by quoting another well-known Old Testament parable. So he's actually quoting another parable that they would have known from Isaiah chapter 5. The first verses there read from Isaiah 5 verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst, and also made a wine press in it. From Isaiah chapter 5, and Jesus begins his story here, and he tells us that there was a man. <clears throat> and this man had high hopes of enjoying the fruit of his labor. You see, a man does not work like this simply for exercise or for practice. He had a purpose in what he was doing. First of all, what did he do? He planted a vineyard. In Judah, this was often on a hillside, a very stony hillside, for that's the landscape that they had in those days. The plains and the flat lands were primarily used for the growing of grain. This man put in a lot of toil and sweat as he took away the stones, planted the plants, and began to build this vineyard. The next thing it says he does is he sets a hedge or a fence or a wall. And it's to keep people out and animals out and it's to hedge in clearly and show that this is his domain. This is the limit. This is the property that he owns. This is his vineyard. This is his wall around it. Thirdly, he dug a wine vat. Some of your translations say a wine pit under the wine press. And it's simple. It was for the purpose that as the wines were, as the grapes were pressed in that vat, the, the juice would then flow down to the bottom, would come down into a large holding container, a vat underneath that, where the juice would be collected. Then he built a tower. The tower would serve at least three functions. One would be as a lookout. Second would be the storage of supplies and equipment. And third would be for the protection or the shelter for the workers out there at the vineyard. So the intro is that this man has done everything necessary for a highly productive vineyard. He planted, he set, he dug. 
and he built. Nothing is missing here. And his next step was a common business arrangement at that time. He leased the vineyard to men who were equipped and trained to manage it. These men are known as vine dressers. They're also called tenants or husbandmen or vine growers. The word is literally a Greek word that translates as land workers. So he leases that out. And some of the farmers within our midst have been in these arrangements as well. Where land was leased out to them. They raised crops on it. A certain portion was given to the landowner. And they kept a portion for their use. For their sale. So it wasn't uncommon now. And it wasn't uncommon then. His next step. Excuse me. Remember though that the man did not sell the vineyard. He did not give up ownership. He set it under the management of those with ability to take care of it. The man would receive a portion of the fruits of the vineyard as lease payment. The vine dressers would enjoy a portion of the fruits as well. And then the man's final course of action is he goes away to a far country or on a long journey. So now, now, it's about four or five years later, it's vintage time, harvest time. Verse 2 says, He sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. So we have the arrival of harvest time. Vintage time. It would have been four to five years after the initial planting. The vine dressers would have busily worked on maintaining the irrigation system, the trellis for the growing vines, keeping out animals and birds, and everything else required for developing a vineyard. After much hard work and several years of anticipation, that harvest day has come. So the owner sent a servant, or a bond servant. Actually, he's a slave. And I'll use all of these terms or titles at one time or another this morning. These are men sent by the owner. They are under his authority, and they carry with them the wishes and commands of the owner. Verse 3 says, And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. This is a startling reception, is it not? They took or caught this messenger slave, and they beat him. And beat translates literally to remove the skin. Again, the man sent another servant. And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. A very sobering repeat. And again he sent another and him they killed. The stark reality here. The stark reality is the violence is intensifying. And the pattern of rebellion is unmistakable. And many others it says he sent. And they beat some and they killed some. Verse 6. Hone in on verse 6. Therefore still having one son. His beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. The long-suffering grace of this man is amazing. The man would have been legally and morally justified to have brought in soldiers to stop this murderous mutiny. In fact, justice would have demanded the removal and execution. But still, he has a beloved son who is the last representative of the man. And this son possesses the legitimate authority 
of the man. He is beloved. He is the last representative. And he is legitimately the authority that the man would have. Surely those vineyard workers will see the seriousness of the situation and defer to the man's own flesh and blood. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. It is a diabolical, self-serving plot. So they took him, and they killed him, and he cast him out of the vineyard. And this is their final revolt. Observe, observe carefully the repeated, gracious, long-suffering of the man. It is an outrageous grace. The phrase, he sent, appears four times. And prior to the sending of his son, the owner sent many others. Who knows how many? Some were beaten. Others were murdered. This much tolerance and ongoing patience, it doesn't even seem reasonable in our minds, does it? Is it a gesture of foolishness? Why would the owner give and give and give while being rejected and injured over and over again? On the other hand, the rebellion and wickedness of the vine dressers not only continue unabated, but they actually increase. The vine dressers not only repeat the violent revolt time and again, but witness here, witness how it grows in its violence to the point of murder. They beat the first slave. They sent him away empty-handed. That was a bold and aggressive step. It shouts out, We are independent now, and that man will receive nothing. The second slave, sent by the owner, he's stoned by the tenants, and literally they bash in his head and send him away in shame, but still alive. But to heighten their point, the tenants do not send the third messenger away empty-handed, nor in shame. They brutally kill him. The escalating cruelty of the vine dressers is matched only by the continued grace of the man until we read that he has no other messengers to send. He has but an only son. With no more servants to send, he will send his very own son. Surely they will respect him. He is the descendant. He is the one who rightly owns the vineyard in his father's absence. He carries the same legal authority into the vineyard that the father has. But this son is more than a representative of his father's authority. Look carefully. This son is special. Notice what is made beautifully clear. This son has a special description. What is it? He is beloved. He is beloved. Where in Scripture have we heard this title before? The beloved son. Where have we heard that? Matthew 3, verses 16 through 17. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now sometime after that, 
Jesus took Peter, James, and John on a special mountain hike. And on this mountain, they experienced a very unique display of Jesus' deity. His glorious God was literally unveiled to them for a moment. That is why it is called the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, if you would like to follow along with me there. Matthew 17 verses 1 through 5. And we will get this straight from the Word. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John his brother. And led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. This is the depth of the relationship that bonds this Son who is being sent to the Father, the Creator and the owner of the vineyard. The vine dressers, they do not kill this beloved Son as if He were just another slave from the owner. No, this murder is calculated. It is, has the most wicked of intent. Jesus says the tenants discussed among themselves the fact that the son is also the heir. They knew without a doubt the gravity of what they were doing. They're, they recognize him and instead of paying the respect the son deserves, they look at this as their perfect opportunities. Like jackals with the taste of fresh blood in their throats, they will kill the son and the vineyard will be all theirs. Now some commentators believe the vine dressers are assuming the father is already dead since the son has come. If that is the case, there was some legal precedence that if land was left unclaimed for over three years, the first to establish a claim would be the new owners. Was this to be the reward for the evil of the, wine, of the vine dressers? But at this very climax of bloody mutiny, Jesus interrupts and poses a strategic question. He says, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? The owner, this is the first time in the parable this title is given of the man. In the King James it is translated as Lord. It is a Greek word, kurios. And it can be of men who are in authority, but it is overwhelmingly used in the New Testament for Yahweh God and for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the owner is not dead. Neither is he weak, disinterested, or unaware. Jesus' question here is like a judge asking the jury to render a sentence. And he asks, in light of the evidence of this sordid account, what is the owner justified in doing? And the response is immediate. He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. A sobering sentence upon these vine dressers. Matthew 21 though, verse 41 states that the listeners responded to Jesus' question declaring this, He will bring those wretch, wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper time. It appears then that Jesus affirms what the crowd shouted and he says, He will come 
and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. So the, the, owner, the owner executes three decisive steps. First, he comes. There will be no more messengers or sons with appeals. He has had enough and they must deal with him. Secondly, he destroys. He executes the vine dressers. This is every bit a just punishment for the murderous rebellion they have carried out repeatedly all the way up to the vine owner's or the vineyard owner's son. And his third and final stroke, this may have been the hardest for the Sanhedrin to swallow. The owner gives the vineyard to others. The owner's intention is that the vineyard will continue. And it will bear fruit, but it will be managed by those loyal to him. Now Luke indicates that by this time the chief priests, scribes, and elders, they begin to decipher the parable and they suddenly protest this whole story. Verse 16 in Luke 20 says, certainly not, may it never be. It's an absolute never. What a dramatic story. Jesus has answered the question the Sanhedrin had asked him only minutes ago. That question, remember, was by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? By the end of Jesus' story, the chief priests, scribes, and elders see that the owner is God. The vineyard was the intended place where spiritual fruit was to grow and to bring glory and praise to God. It began as Israel. That was the domain of the vine dressers and most of this parable. But in the end it would expand beyond those boundaries to all who would seek God through the Son Jesus Christ. For the vine dressers were destroyed but the vineyard lived on to be in the hands of others. The vine dressers, you see them. They're the Jewish priests, elders, Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, all the religious leaders who were commanded to instruct love and give godly example to God's people. But as this parable reports, that was not how they functioned at all. Hear how Jesus describes them in Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Beginning with verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The servants, the slaves, 
They were the countless number of prophets sent by God to command repentance to the people of God. A large number of these faithful slaves were shamefully mistreated, rejected, beaten, and killed. The far country, the far country really amounts to approximately 1,500 years of Old Testament history. From Moses to the very day Jesus spoke this parable. The owner God had created a means through which his people could worship and draw near to him. He had given extensive clear instruction to Moses. These were instituted and communicated to the children of Israel. Through the ensuing centuries, however, Israel constantly rebelled in idolatry. Many, many, many times, God the owner sent prophets in order to bring them back to fruitfulness in faith and in his kingdom. In the harvest time, it was a time at which the Lord God expected spiritual fruit. Obedience, thankfulness, praise, and glory were to be offered to Him. None of that was present in the vineyard on that final day. And the owner's son, the beloved son, the only son, is the one standing before their very eyes at that moment, Jesus of Nazareth. Every element of the parable Jesus told them was unfolding in real life just as he had said. And now here they are on the verge of carrying out the most heinous deeds of the parable. The murder of the beloved son. How maddening it must have been for those dark, secretive, wicked rulers to find out that Jesus truly knows everything about them. Every iota of their plan is clear before him. Many times he had already told his disciples. He told them in far greater detail than even this parable. He said in Mark 8, chapter 31. Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and scribes and be killed after three days rise again. Mark 9, 31. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Mark 10, verse 32 through 34. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was going before him. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again, detail after detail after detail. Christ enters that city knowing what lays before him in every excruciating painful moment right up to the separation of him from his beloved father. Jesus knew, and he knew what was on the hearts of those men. Then, Christ wisely turns to the authority that even the Sanhedrin could not deny. Jesus quotes in verse 10 from the Law and the Prophets. He quotes the holy word of God, reciting from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
Jesus chides their ignorance of the Word of God. They were supposed to be the experts of the Scriptures. Have you not even read? With another razor-sharp analogy, Jesus pierces to the truth of who these religious authorities really were before God and who He is, the cornerstone of God's kingdom. They are the bumbling, blind, and proud builders who foolishly reject and throw aside the very foundation stone upon which all faith and life rests, Jesus Christ the Messiah. In masonry, an entire building was dependent upon that first laid primary cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. Its angles and cuts must be accurate and firm in order for the rest of the building to be square, strong, and secure. Jesus Christ is that cornerstone for all of life and faith to those who trust in Him. Peter later preached to these same religious leaders, the same, essentially the same guys. In Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Please turn to that if you would. Acts 4, verse 1. And, and it had to be echoing because Jesus had said this to them and now Peter is saying to this, now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead and they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, there they are again, the Sanhedrin, as well as Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Is this not a familiar question? This is exactly what they were asking Jesus in his ministry. And now they're asking Jesus' followers the same question. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you, to you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was re rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It was God's plan from the beginning, and he has carried out his will. This was done with intention. It was not a plan B, nor was it a re reaction to the unexpected rejection of the Son. The rejection of Jesus Christ, including the suffering of death that He was about to endure, as well as His stunning victory over sin in the grave, they were part of the original design for God's glory. And it says then, and it is marvelous in our sight. It is marvelous in our sight. It's as if the psalmist were able to look back on the death, burial, and glorious resurrection of Christ. It is marvelous. It is wonderful. It is beyond our greatest imaginations. The more you study the gospel, the more you give thanks for it and trust in it, the more unbelievable it seems. 
Revelation 15, 3 through 4, uses this word marvelous as well. It says there, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? The Messiah, Jesus Christ. And saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. That is the future, brothers and sisters. It is proclaimed and it is being fulfilled now. But someday it will be fulfilled in full glory. And that one, that son who was slain, the owner's son, will be that lamb that all focuses upon. And praise and glory will well up like we've never imagined before. But there's still another group of characters in this passage this morning. And they, the scribes, the elders, and the priests, sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. These slinking persecutors. These rogue leaders attempted to seize Jesus. The word means to do it with strength, to strong arm him. But they were restrained. And they were restrained by the same tool that God used twice before. Once in Mark 11, verse 10, 18, and then eleven thirty-two, That restraint is their own pride and fear. Jesus' popularity had risen to its pinnacle. Any action on the part of the Jewish leaders would backfire, perhaps even get them killed. Besides that, it was not God's will that His Son be murdered this day. That day was yet to come. So the chief pri- scribes, or excuse me, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders gave up that battle at the temple. This attack on Jesus had ended in a humiliating retreat. It had started when they confronted him in the temple saying, by what authority are you doing these things? Then who gave you the authority to do these things? Now, they did not hear the words they hoped to trap Jesus with, but he had answered their question. He left no doubt as to who he is as well as who they are. You see, parables usually left the religious leaders dumbfounded. Not this one. They understood it quite well. It was for them. The destruction of the vine dressers literally took place through the hands of the Roman army less than four decades after Jesus taught this parable. It occurred in 70 AD. By the sacking and destruction of Jerusalem, and the region of Judea. Literally hundreds of thousands of Jews were murdered and taken away into slavery. The entire Jewish religious system was wiped out. The temple was destroyed. There wasn't a stone left standing. The sacrificial system was eliminated. The genealogical records were burned so that there no longer remains documentation to confirm Levitical priests. The Sanhedrin disappeared. The corrupt religious system of the vine dressers was erased. But, but the vineyard was not destroyed. It was given to others. It was first given to the Son, the Son of the owner, Jesus Christ. And after His ascension to the Father, that ragtag group of apostles 
Remember how they're described in Acts chapter 4? They're bold, but uneducated and untrained men. But they had been with Jesus. They became the new vine dressers. And it went on to include both Jews and Gentiles that would give their lives to the Son who gave His life first for them. It would include men and women who would give their lives for the glory of God. Men and women, we don't live in a particularly exact replica of what we saw there. But there are vestiges of that. There are things where we claim that it looks good. Remember the fig tree. Why did Jesus approach it? It looked good from the outside. It was ostentatiously flourishing with all these leaves. But it was fruitless. It had no figs. That was the church of Israel. Brothers and sisters, that is so much even a religious activity in the world in which we live, the country in which we live, the ostentatious presentations. Do we know this King? Do we know this Son? Do we love Him and give our lives to Him, pour our lives to Him? Are we telling the world that He is their only hope? Or do we feel comfortable if we look good? And if we keep up some of the habits and some of the uh, the requirements perhaps of, of faith and the outward trappings. Don't be a fig tree that will be dried up from the roots someday. Don't be among those who are like these vine dressers. Nobody looked more religious in that day than the vine dressers. They were the ones that they looked to for direction, for the, the word from God. But these men knew nothing of God. Search your hearts, pour yourselves into Christ. Take this word and pour over this word. Do you believe this is the word of God? That he has spoken to us and that this is living and powerful? It's sharper than a two-edged sword that it is a light to our path, a lamp, lamp unto our feet, that it is the balm of Gilead, that it is a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. When this word came, did you... Eat it because it was your joy and your heart's delight for we bear the name of God. Pour yourself into the word of God. Pour yourself into prayer. Stay with God in prayer. Don't expect to have some sort of emotional instantaneous experience in prayer. We cannot demand God because I get to my knees and I take five minutes that he come and visit me with some sort of a, a special anointing. Come to him undeservedly but now brought in because you are his son and daughter through the blood of Jesus Christ. But come to him in prayer. Spend much time with him in prayer. Somehow make it happen. For he is the king. He is the Lord. He is the one. And may we as a body of Christ encourage each other to these things. May we spur one another on, as Hebrews says, toward love and good deeds. May this church be a church that shows the love of Christ to each other and that proclaims a clear biblical gospel. A gospel that we were dead in our sins. Dead. We weren't comatose, hoping for some sort of a spark that would kick us out of it. We were dead and had no hope at all. And Christ came. We did not come to him. He came to us. And he took the sins of all those who trust in him and placed them upon himself. The wicked stench of that sin. The wicked stench of my sin alone is enough to make you throw up. 
And he put it upon himself and he went to that cross and he bore the sins of many, the scriptures say. And there he hung in pain and agony. But the greatest, the greatest pain was a separation from the Father because of the sin that he bore that was not his. He bore my filth. He bore my perversion. He bore my anger, my selfishness, my jealousy, my covetousness, my slanderous words, my harshness. My, my gossip. He took that upon himself, never having done any of those, and paid the price of death for me. And the father could not look upon him. And there was a separation. And that son was buried. But he had completed the work. Remember what he said. It is finished. He had done what nothing and no one else could do. He had made it possible for sinners like you and I to come and live and be sons and daughters of God. The magnitude of of that title, of that role and privilege is beyond the scope of our imaginations. It really is. But dwell on it. Meditate on it. That is what Christ has come to do. If you have not if you have not placed your faith in him, realize that that one who died for you conquered death's sting and came out of that grave and conquered death for all who have trusted in him. He is the firstborn among many brethren. Praise God for for this Savior. In 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 10, we read Peter again speaking about this cornerstone. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10, and we will close with this scripture. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, the elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, then a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you, you who have believed and trusted in him, are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation his own special people, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, O owner of the vineyard, owner of of all creation, would you please Help us see that. You, you revealed such a special thing to Peter and James and John on that Mount of Transfiguration. And Lord, I know 
that's, that's not your order for us right now. But please, Lord, help us see you more. Help us to grip the grandeur, the, the marvel, the, the incomprehensible greatness of who you are, your holiness. And then to see your grace and your, your mercy. Oh, Lord, open our eyes and our hearts so that it wouldn't be a duty for us to proclaim Christ, but that it would be the swelling up of our hearts in love and thankfulness that we would tell the world who Jesus is, that we would come and we would praise you with hearts full of the knowledge of God. Lord, we are, I am, I am thick, I am slow, I am simple, and many of my brothers and sisters would, would agree with that for their lives. But Lord, you can quicken us. You have made us new creations. Draw us nearer to you, for you are worthy, Lord. Amen.